There have been times in my life, especially when I was younger, that I had so few responsibilities and so much free time that I literally found myself getting bored. This was especially true when I was in grade school. I hated grade school. I hated having to go get up in the morning, had to, doing all the assignments, taking the exams, and all I could do is just, I could not wait until summer break came. I just couldn't wait until I could sleep in and really do nothing at all. That's what I wanted to do, and it was so much fun for about a week. And then all of a sudden I found myself starting to complain that I had nothing to do, but of course, I had to be very, very careful not to let my dad hear that because he had this uncanny way of finding something for me to do, and it was never something I wanted to do. I'm sure that some of you can probably identify with that. But there were times in my life when I had too little responsibilities and too much time, but as you get older, you know that that begins to change. It seems like you have just the opposite problem. You have too many responsibilities and not enough time, really, to be able to fulfill them. I first started begin to recognize this when I came up with a bright idea that I was going to work a full-time job while I went to college full-time and took five college classes. So 40 hours a week in the job, 15, 16 hours in college classes. Uh, around midterms and finals, I realized this wasn't so bright, that there was more things that I was supposed to be getting done than really I could handle, that I had time for or abilities to be able to accomplish. Not too many years ago, uh, while we were in this building, uh, the church was growing, the, my family was going, my own family was growing, and I decided that it'd be a great time to do my doctoral work and try to write a dissertation in between all of it. And I realized in moments like that, that Sometimes our responsibilities are greater than our time in our abilities. Now, I'm sure that your tough times, your busy times of life, it looks different than mine, but really it's about similar, just feeling like you've got too many things to do. And these are not bad things. These are good responsibilities, responsibilities in the home, responsibility in the workplace, responsibility in the local church. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, they could just become a little bit overwhelming you can even feel this way even in your Christian walk. When you stop and begin to become a student of the Word of God and you're reading through, you realize that there are a lot of commands that God gives every single one of us as a believer of Christ. Things like pray without ceasing. Things like meditating on the Word of God day and night. Things like being a witness and sharing the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth and making disciples of all nations. That is a lot of responsibility. And the truth is, we look at all of those and we think to ourselves, there's no way. There's no way that I can possibly do all this. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough ability within myself to do what God is commanding me to do. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ knows that. He knows that there are many commands of which we are commanded to do. There are binding commands that apart from him, there's no way we could do it. If we try to do it in our own strength, in our own ability, there's no possible way. However, with God and trusting in Him, we begin to recognize that we, in fact, can do what He's called us to do. We see this really become clear in our text of Scripture, scripture this morning. This is a very common, very well-known story. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, multiplying the fish and the loaves. And in it, Jesus again commands the people to do something that from their perspective was humanly impossible. And what it does, it does two things. It, first of all, brings to light their deficiencies, but more importantly, it brings and sheds light on Christ's sufficiency. 
So what we want to do is in this text, I think it shows us a very common, well-known text. It demonstrates two things that are true about the sufficiency of Christ, two areas that he indeed is sufficient. The first is this. We see that he is sufficient in compassion, that he's sufficient in compassion. Follow along in your Bibles, if you will, verse 10. The Bible says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had. Uh, all that they had done. And he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So Jesus' disciples, just kind of catching up, Jesus had sent his disciples out on a short-term mission trip. He had, they had been watching him minister for a period of about a year and a half. He had watched them heal the sick. He had watched them preach the, heard them preach the gospel and even cast out demons. And now, after a year and a half, Jesus said, it's your turn. So he gives them the power and the authority to do the exact same things that Jesus had been doing. So during this time, he sends them out, and they've been ministering. And any of you who have taken part in any kind of Christian ministry, you know as well as I do, you know that ministry can be incredibly fulfilling it can be incredibly satisfying. It's, there's nothing else like it, but it can also be very tiring. And you can wear yourself out serving the Lord. And so they begin to become tired. They begin to become worn out as well. And not only were they physically and spiritually worn out, what we also find here is that, that it was more than that. They were even emotionally spent and worn out. Because we find here in verses 7 through 10 that while they were out ministering, that John the Baptist was actually put to death by Herod. And now Herod is actually looking for Jesus, which means they find Jesus, they find his disciples. He, he's wondering if John the Baptist has come back to life, and he wants to verify that. And FYI, for the reason of probably putting him to death as well. And so now they have this emotional strain, not only physically exhausted, but emotionally exhausted, understanding that this following Jesus may have a higher cost than they had at first had understood and intended or understood. And so Jesus understood, knowing them, loving them, understood that they had to take a little bit of a vacation. They needed a break. And so let me say one thing. Uh, this particular miracle, the, 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 the multiplication of the, of the fish and the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000, it's one of only two miracles that's found in every one of the gospel writers, by every one of the gospel writers. And so what that does, the other miracle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what this does is it gives us a bigger, broader picture and understanding of everything that was going on in this context. So as I tell it, I'm going to be pulling from those different stories as well. Well, one thing that we do know is that they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Matthew and, and Mark actually tell us that they had gotten into a boat. I don't know if some of you remember this. A few weeks ago, I tried to help you men who were trying to buy a boat and convince your wife to buy a boat to say every time Jesus needed a break, he went out on a boat. Do you remember that? Well, he goes out on a boat again to get away from it all. So they get into a boat, they cross the sea, they come to a small fishing town called Bethsaida which literally means the house of fish. Not a whole lot there. It's really kind of desolate. Well, when they get there, we found out that the people that they had just left on the other side of the lake had actually, where they were trying to take a break from, actually saw them heading to the other side of the lake, ran around the lake, and showed up and were there when Jesus and his disciples showed up. Surprise, they say. Did you miss us? Here we are. Now, I don't like to read too much in the text of Scripture. I don't want to put myself into the text. But if I were on that boat, I would be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. 
This is ridiculous. We went to take a break, and now the same people that we were trying to take a break from in the ministry, they now show up, and here they are. Fortunately, Jesus has a completely different response. In verse 11, we read there, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus showed this group of people something that we rarely see in our world today. Jesus extended to this group of people compassion. Now, compassion is more than just a feeling. It's more than an emotion. It's more than sympathy. Sympathy is an emotion, something that you feel for people who are in the midst of suffering. Compassion goes beyond that. It not only feels for the suffering of another individual, it actually does something to heal the suffering of that person, to take away the suffering of that particular individual. Now, I know that some would probably object and say, well, what do you mean? We see compassion everywhere today, especially in the last few years. We see people who are victims and see people who have been uh, mistreated, and, and the world is calling for compassion. And I would say, air quotes, perhaps, perhaps that is true, but not the kind of compassion that Jesus extends. The compassion that's being promoted today, though in part very good, we do care for those who have suffered unjustly. We do care for those who have been hurt by other people, who have been mistreated. Uh, we, we are concerned for the innocent who have suffered in the midst of their innocence. But God's compassion is completely different because it's not only for the innocent, it's for the guilty. That's what's unusual about the person of Jesus Christ. He is not only extending compassion and wanting to help those who are, are innocent, but actually extends grace to those who inflicted pain on other people, actually the guilty. This is what is so unique about the person of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what's happening in this text. All the people who ran around the lake, who came to them that Jesus wanted to care for, spoke to, spoke the word of God, welcomed, and also healed, they were all guilty. Guilty of what? First of all, messing up their vacation. That's the number one thing that they were guilty of. But even more than that, they were guilty of the sin of idolatry. That's what they were guilty of. Do not think for a moment that after, after Jesus and his disciples had been ministering on the other side of the, uh, of the uh, lake and they were sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that now these people were running around to Jesus to now respond in some kind of altar call and be able to say, hey, we get it. We're sinners. We need to place our faith in you. Tell us what we need to do to be saved. They're not doing that at all. They're running around for one reason and one reason only, to get more stuff for themselves, for Jesus to do more things for them, to meet more temporal needs. John MacArthur says, and I think it's, it's right, he says that they were thrill seekers who eagerly followed Jesus as their king who could provide healing and free food. And we know this is true because immediately after this, when Jesus finally tells them that he's not going to give them any more food, that he's not going to heal them anymore at this particular point, all of a sudden they want nothing to do with him and they walk away. Which means they really did not want Christ. They just wanted the stuff that Christ from eternity's past ultimately made. That's idolatry. It's not the creator of, it's not the worship of the creator, but the creation itself. So this is what they're guilty of. But here's what I want you to note. For you, for you and I, we would see right through it. Jesus saw right through it. He knew what was in the heart of man. You and I would say, I'm not going to be used. What does Jesus do? He still shows compassion. And what this shows to us is that he never turns a sinner away. He is never unavailable. He never takes a break. He is always ready to receive them. 
His compassion was sufficient for them. And brothers and sisters, it's sufficient for you as well. The problem is for us is that we buy, uh, buy into the lie of the enemy and the lie of the devil. When, when we're hurting or when we've messed things up, when, when, when we're suffering for our, for, because of our own bad decisions and our own sin, uh, we sit back and be in our heads, we sit there and say, well, I really need God's help, but I can't go to him. I can't go to him because I don't deserve it. I don't deserve his help. I, I haven't earned his help. And then we begin to even think, and how many times have I gone him to help before? And he's helped me, and I've only turned around and I've ruined it again. How can I possibly go back to him again? And you know what the truth is? None of what I just said was a lie. That's not the lie of the devil. That's actually truth. The truth is, None of us are worthy of God's help. None of us have earned his help. All of us have gone and he's extended grace and we've still sinned even in light of the grace that he's extended to us. But here is the lie that Jesus won't receive you again. That Jesus is not interested because you've blown it and because you're undeserving that he's not willing and able to come into your life and to minister and to meet your needs and have compassion where you are as guilty as you might be. That's the sufficiency of his compassion. And some of you are sitting back right now and you're even thinking, and I'll hear this as a pastor. I'll, we'll share the gospel and people say, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the sin that I've taken part in. You don't understand what I've done to my family, what I've done to my wife. You don't know the hurt that I've ultimately caused. And what they think that they're doing is that they're building up this airtight case for why God will not help them. When in a reality, all they've done is really built an airtight case as in a court of law that says you are exactly the type of person that Jesus came to extend compassion on. And so if you're sitting back and you're thinking to yourself, it's not enough for me, and maybe, you're, maybe you have been abused, maybe you have been hurt, and I want to let you know his compassion is on you. He sees your hurt. He understands your hurt. He will give you what you need. He will act in your life to bring about healing in your life. But guess what? Even if you're guilty, and this is the amazing thing about his compassion, it's sufficient for you as well. It's sufficient for you as well. So that's the first point. We see his sufficiency in what? In the area of compassion. But we also see that he is sufficient in provision. Look at verse 12. He says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So here we see a difficulty arise. It's getting late. The sun is beginning to go down. Uh, there is no place to go. There's no place for the people to stay overnight. There's no food, place to be able to get food. Uh, the King James Version, if you have that, it, it says literally they went to the desert. This is not the desert. It is a deserted place. It wasn't dry and, 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 and sandy. It was actually uh, very green and lots of greenery around that particular part of the Sea of Galilee, but it was deserted. There was nobody there that they can turn to. So here they have these obvious physical needs, and, and, and the disciples decide that they have the answer. Here's their answer. Send the crowd away, Jesus. Send them packing. This will teach them. Next time they'll learn to come prepared, right? They need to learn a lesson, each man for himself. This is how the response, the, the the, these believers, after Jesus extending mercy to them, this is how they uh, ultimately are responding. Well, Jesus has a different way of responding. In verse 13, he turns to his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. You do it. 
And this wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't a, hey, you know, if you got some time, you might want to help them out. This wasn't a question. Hey, do you think you can help them out? That's not what he said. This is a direct command from Jesus Christ. He says, you do it. You do it. Now, it's been my experience in, as a Christian that, that most Christians never have a problem with identifying the need. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, we see people in church all the time. They're very clear to let us know what we're missing here at, at Mercy Hill. Meet them for the very first time. Hey, guests? Yeah, we're guests. Well, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much. It's wonderful to meet you. God bless you. Let me tell you about a church down the street. Now, and, and so you, you, you find yourself sitting there. People just are like, here's, here's what's wrong. Here's what's going on. Uh, people in your own life, they'll come up to you and go, brother, you know what you're missing? Here's what you're missing in your life. Or I love this is the guy here in Yulee, Florida, who sits there and goes, makes this statement. You know what the world is missing? Please tell me, guy who lives in Yulee, what is it that, that really the whole world is missing? So people have no problem identifying what the problem is at all. They do have a problem of identifying that it, they have a responsibility in meeting the needs around them. That's the difficulty people have of doing. It's so weird, it's you'll see people and it's almost like they feel as though it's their spiritual gift. They sit there and go, I know everything that is wrong and I know all of the needs. My gift is to identify it, let others know what is going wrong, allow them to be able to fix it, and then they walk around somehow feeling good about themselves, feeling as though they've accomplished something when they've not actually accomplished anything. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, if you see a need and you recognize a need, it's your and my responsibility to do all we can to be able to seek to meet it. And so he tells the people, his people, do something about it. And notice this, they, they, he says, do something about it. Now we're going to see the response. This is what we do. Let's come up with an excuse of why we can't do what Jesus is telling us to do. He says, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about 5,000 men. Now, we know from the parallel accounts that some of the disciples at least attempted to make an effort here. Uh, we, we do know that in, in John chapter, excuse me, in John chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, he says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy even enough bread for each person to have even a bite, he says. Even one bite, it would take a half a year's wages for somebody to do that. So at least he made some kind of attempt at calculating how much money they would need to do it, but he comes to understand they are deficient to be able to meet the need. Then we understand in another passage of Scripture that it was not only uh, one, another one of the disciples, Andrew, he appears and he tried to take inventory. He's like, well, we don't have enough money, but what is it that we have on hand? So he begins to go throughout the crowd and ask, hey, what do you have to be able to give to be able to help the crowd? The only person they can find with any food is a little boy who, whose mom had packed him a lunch of two fish and five loaves. And he sees them and says, this is it. Now, when he comes, he goes, this is all we have. Two fish, five loaves, can't be done. Send them away. This is impossible what we're doing. Now, to be a little bit uh, understandable, understand what they were going through. There are 5,000 men out there, 5,000, which means that there are probably at least equally enough women, probably another 5,000 women that are there at least. I think probably more because women seem to gravitate towards Christ more than men do oftentimes, but there's probably more women there. And then there's even more children there. So scholars suggest that there's anywhere between 10 and 25,000 people here and they have two fish and they have five loaves. 
you and I would probably go, send him away. Wives, imagine for a second your husband showing up at dinner time. You've made this beautiful meal for him. And he, he walks in. He goes, honey, I'm sorry that I'm a little bit late. But I had, a, I had some folks that really, I, I just let, last minute invited them for dinner. All of a sudden, your heart goes pitter-pat because you're not sure if you have enough to be able to feed them, right? And you're like, that's fine. You're looking down at what you have. And you say, well, how many people did you invite over, honey? And he goes, 25,000. <laughs> 25,000 people. All right, that's not something at that moment that you sit there and go, let me see what we have in the pantry. All right, that's not what you do. You just go, you're an idiot. Get out of here. I love you, right? And so this is not going to happen. Now, what's happening for the disciples at this point is they are making one major error. One author writes, they were acting like men without a God. They were living in a way that we often live. That we think what God is requiring of us is to be able to just do what we ourselves can do and think that we can accomplish all that God has told us to accomplish by our own power, our own ability, and our own strength when he, at, he is not at all. What he wants to do is ask us to do things we know we can't do, to recognize we can't, but to recognize that he ultimately can. We may not be able to provide, but he's able to provide. And so Jesus, we, we understand uh, here that oftentimes uh, there, is a, there is this habit of Jesus in the word of God that he's often asking people, this is normative for him to ask people to do stuff that they can't do. We see it all the way through the scriptures. We see it, remember in the beginning of Mark when, uh, when the, these friends had a lame man and they need to get him to Jesus, but they can't get him through the crowd because it's just too tight, too compacted. And so they, they go up on the roof and they literally rift the shingles of the roof off and they lower him down. And what does Jesus say to the lame man? Do you remember? Take up your mat and walk. He's lame. He's telling him to do something that is physically impossible for him to do. Now, just track with me. Later on, we go into one of the synagogues. It's on the Sabbath day, and the man has a, a withered hand. I don't know exactly how that looks, but I didn't work through this, but this is, he's got a withered hand. And Jesus says to do what? He says, stretch out your hand. How does a man with a withered hand stretch out his hand? If he did that, he wouldn't need God working in his life. Then we see my favorite, of course, is Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for several days in the tomb. He's literally rotting away. What does Jesus do? Lazarus, come out. Your little voice, I love you, but I'm dead, right? He's calling them to do these things that are absolutely impossible for them to do in their own power apart from the power of Jesus Christ. And so what we find is Jesus then comes and he shows that where they are not sufficient, he is. You know the rest of the story. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in the groups about 50 each. And they did so and they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then they broke the loaves and they gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all are and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, if you want to be entertained, just go back and listen, read a, a number of commentaries on this, and you will find all kinds of explanations about what was really actually going on here. One of my favorite is a story of where Jesus, this wasn't really a miracle, not a miracle at all. This was just a demonstration of ingenuity. Jesus knew that there was no fish or bread to be had out there. So before they arrived, they had secured a truck full of fish and bread, 
And what they had done is there's, there's these little caves around, and Jesus knew that, so they had them store it all into the cave. And then what was happening is Jesus would kind of stand there, and what he would begin to do is the disciples would slip fish and bread through kind of his arm sleeves, and he would just keep dishing it out like this. Now, I don't know about you, but that really takes more faith to really actually believe than the actual miracle, doesn't it? Another person who is, is kind of disappointing, William Barclay. William Barclay is a man that I've actually gained a lot of knowledge from, and especially him like setting the content, historical context for different passages of Scripture. And, and I still have the commentary, so I'm not going to throw it away, but I was disappointed when William Barclay said this. It is not necessary to think a miracle occurred here. He said, instead, there was a different type of miracle. It wasn't a miracle of creation. It was a miracle of the heart. He said, what actually probably happened here was that that little boy, they asked for anybody who would give food. Nobody wanted to be able to give food. In fact, they had all their lunches hidden within their sleeve of their garments. Now, I never even knew this, but in the sleeves of their garments, supposedly there was something there that people would hide the food so nobody could ultimately see it. It's a kind of a great idea. I'd kind of like one myself. And so, so what happens is, he says, at this point, this boy gives what nobody else is willing to give. Everybody else feels guilty about it. Their hearts are moved, and they're like, we need to be able to give as well. And so people started drawing food out of their sleeve. I don't want that food, by the way, but it's taking it out of their sleeve, and they give so much that everybody's been able to be fed. And then what happens at the very end, at the very end of all of this, there's 12 baskets full. Load over. So really, the miracle is really that of giving. That's the miracle. All due respect to Mr. Barkley. <laughs> no. There's not any indication of this at all. The writers are not suggesting that at all. They're suggesting very clearly that this is a miracle. In fact, there is two that were eyewitnesses, Mark and John, who actually were there to be able to demonstrate and to be able to see this particular miracle happen. And so what we do is one of the big ideas that we see here, the significance of it is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that he is able to do immeasurably more all that we ask or imagine according to his power, not according to our power. And so two points to be able to leave with you on this point is this, is Jesus is sufficient to, to provide your everything, your every need. Church, do you believe that? If you believe that, then you and I must stop acting like people who have no God. You and I must act and show faith in the midst of lack and understanding that we may lack, but God has. One author writes it this way. He says, he will give us our daily bread, providing food, clothing, and shelter. He will meet our needs for friendship and fellowship. He will give us the guidance that we seek in faith. He will provide a way for us to serve him. And when God gives the opportunity to serve, he will give us all the resources we need to fulfill our calling. If you're a husband, you're struggling being a husband, a wife struggling being a wife. If you're struggling in leading your kids, if you're struggling in leading a small group, if you're struggling in whatever area, understand this, you are are not capable to do what God has called you to do apart from the power of Jesus Christ. And we identify that. But with him, all things are possible. This is the Christian life that he calls you to. It's the Christian life that he calls me to. And so for you to, to love and to trust God in the midst of this, Robert Morrison was a famous missionary in China in 1805. And the London Missionary Association actually recruited him to be able to take a trip from London over to China 
where he was to minister. Well, this was during a tough time. It was during the time of the uh, Napoleonic Wars. And so in, India, or excuse me, in um, London, there was, there was only so many uh, ships that were actually going to China during that time. In fact, the only one was the East India Company, and they refused to take along missionaries. So trying to find a way there, here's what he said. He, or here's what he did. He went to the United States to try to find passage to China. He found a captain, a reluctant captain, who was willing to be able to take him. The captain knew that he was a missionary. He knew that he was going to bring the gospel there. And this is what the captain said. Skeptically, he said, and so, Mr. Morrison, he says, do you really expect that you will make an impression? You will make an impression on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire. At which he responded, no, sir. Morrison quickly replied, I expect God will. Church, let's stop limiting what we think we can do as a church or what we think we can do as individuals based on your ability and my ability, your bank account and my bank account, the amount of time you have, the amount of time that I have. I'm no longer interested to try to figure out what can be done in our power and our ability. What I'm interested in, what can God do through us in his power and his ability and his sufficiency? That is what God is ultimately calling us to do. There's a second thing here that we wanna see. Second thing and final thing is, all of this is very easy to be able to preach concerning physical needs. And that's probably where our minds are probably gravitating to this time. Some kind of physical, some temporal issue that's happening in our mind and going, okay, this is great, God can, I need to let him, I need to take what I have, I need to put it into his hand and I need to trust him. And all of that is right. But there's a greater truth here than the physical. The greater provision that he makes in the physical is the spiritual. We know this because of the multiplication of the bread. When we go to the Old Testament, one of the things we find is that Old Testament, the bread is almost always symbolic of a spiritual substance from God. When God begins to give manna down from heaven, you know what manna means, right? It means, what is it? Started falling from heaven. They're like, what is it? I don't know. That's a great name. What is it? Do you have any more? What is it? That, you're tracking me? That's what they called it. And so they get this bread, this heavenly bread, and they begin to feed. God begins to feed them. But here's what he says immediately after he gives it to them. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Here's what he was doing. He was connecting his ability to provide supernaturally what they needed for physical life to show them that he could easily provide for them what was necessarily for spiritual life. And what they needed was not physical bread. What they need was spiritual bread. Jesus goes on into John, and here's where he pulls it in. John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He then goes on and says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then finally, this is what he says in John chapter uh, 6 in verse 51. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. He goes and he says, hey, look, you see how I'm able to be able to feed you, to give you physical life. I'm telling you, this is all a picture so that you understand a greater need, that you are spiritually dead, but I can give you spiritual life through my death, through my burial, through my resurrection. 
And so here's the key that he gives. And, and this is, by the way, this idea of the physical, what God can do for us, temporal, as true as it is, do you know that that's secondary? It's a secondary, not primary. How do we know that? Because everybody that Jesus fed is gonna be hungry again. Everybody that Jesus healed would grow sick again. Everybody that Jesus, have you ever thought of this? Raised from the dead, had to die again. What a bummer. Anything that doesn't last must be secondary. But what he does for us spiritually is eternal. That's why it's primary. It's the primary responsibility of the church to make sure that the gospel goes forth and that we understand that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And you might be here this morning and here's what you're doing. You're, you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that God can forgive me of my sin and all that I've done and all that I am. And I'm telling you right now that you are the very person that his compassion is sufficient for. The more that you keep saying he can't, the more you're, you're misunderstanding the depth of his grace and his mercy and his compassion on you. If you will repent and believe and accept him by faith in Jesus Christ, he'll forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. He'll wash away every sin. He'll give you a new heart. He'll regenerate you from the inside and you will be a whole new person if you recognize him as the bread of life.